following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Thank you. Please turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is page number 836. You have to excuse me, I have been coughing this week, a little cold, and it was getting better until I tried to sing today. Now singing has brought it back, so hopefully I'll go through without any or too many problems this morning, but just in case, there is some water. Uh, yes, as Ed was mentioning earlier, I thought I'd start with this and get it out of the way first. As Ed was mentioning earlier, we had a great time camping this weekend, and uh, I was only exaggerating a little when I said I had 3,000 mosquito bites. They're mainly around my ankles, uh, which is great because as I was sitting over there and we're singing and I had my legs crossed, every time I put my hand on my ankle, everything means like, oh, oh that feels good. And I hate that, but uh, I did bring back a few photos for you of, uh, to kind of help you understand a little bit of what was going on over the last several weeks, is there's been a raging debate at Cornerstone about the definition of manliness, okay? And so it has been said uh, over uh, on online interchanges and, and public comments and even uh, one remark in the bulletin that men who choose to associate themselves with lumber and nails and concrete and construction and modern technology are somehow not manly, while men who choose to associate themselves with polyester and nylons are, okay? I would, I would very much disagree with that statement. I think uh, that showing some wisdom is a, is a very manly thing. But, but after this weekend, I, I realized that we were all wrong, every one of us who was debating this, because you're not a man if you camp like this any more than you're a man if you camp like this right here. Oh, that. If you're not a man if you camp like that. You are only a man, a real man, if you camp like that. <laughs> is he in here? No, he's, where is he? Oh, he's not in here. It's Dave Foster. So it's 6.15 in the morning, Saturday morning. I'm the only person up. I'd already gotten up, driven back north to get coffee, come back down. <laughs> early to bed, early to rise, makes a man what? It doesn't work for me. But, uh. <laughs> my wife is laughing harder than anybody at that. Uh, so I'm sitting there all alone, and all of a sudden I hear this crinkling. And I'm looking around trying to figure out where the sound is coming from. And so I start walking around the campsite, such as it was, and I come across this. This is Dave Foster in a sleeping bag in his truck bed covered by a tarp. The crinkling was the tarp moving around, and the only reason he put a tarp on him, by the way, he would have been even manlier without it, but the only reason he did that is because in the night, so much fog had moved in that it was just soaking everything, but it did give us a beautiful sunrise. Check that out. So that was what I saw that morning, sun coming through the trees and the fog, and it was, it was cool. So despite all my complaining and my 3,000 bug bites, we did have a lot of fun, and yes, I did go to bed early, but I got coffee before anyone else, so there's trade-offs on all those things. You're in verse 21 of Mark 1, I hope. We are continuing to work through this section. We're going to read it together as usual, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. Look at verse 21, if you will. Mark writes that they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for your word this morning. It is a good reminder that we as people are weak, foolish. We are so finite, so limited by so many things, and yet we get to read about one who knows no limits, no bounds, no, there's no, nothing that is too big or too much for you. And so this morning, Jesus, as we read, will we help, will you help us to see you as the divine king that you are? Help us to, to understand you this morning, to be changed by you to be confronted by you because the fact of the matter is lord is despite despite the fact that you are our king there are many many people maybe some in this room maybe many in this room maybe we just don't know lord they don't see you as king they don't treat you as king they don't acknowledge you as king you're just another person that happens to be in a story they've read so lord we don't want to treat you that way today we want to to see you and be in awe of you through what Mark has written here. Please open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to see all those things we ask in your name. Amen. Well, last Sunday I began our time together by pointing out that what Mark is recording for us here in verses 21 to 34 is Jesus's first full day, as we would think about it, morning to evening, Jesus's first full day of public ministry and I and I try to emphasize to you and I hope you walked out understanding that that doesn't necessarily mean that this is Jesus's first day. He he probably most likely had many days of public ministry prior to this one, but this is the day that Mark chooses to open with as he begins his story. You see it beginning here in verse 21 with Jesus going to the synagogue for their worship service most likely on a, a Saturday morning sometime. He's going to teach that morning. And at some point in the service, a demon-possessed guy is going to interrupt him, and Jesus will, will talk with him very, very briefly, basically saying, get out, and the demon will leave, and the service ends, verse 29, as he walks down the street, leaves the synagogue, walks down the street back to, back to Peter's house, where they find Peter's mother-in-law sick in bed with a fever. He heals her, they spend some time together as a group, and then sunset comes, and, and Mark says that the whole city, which is a little bit of hyperbole, he says the whole city comes together at the door because they've got sick people and demon-possessed people that all need to be healed and dealt with. Jesus does that. They all leave. They go to bed, and the next day begins in verse 35. So that, that is why we're calling this Jesus' first day, because Mark has given us here a kind of a morning-to-night view of, of Jesus' day here, a day in the life of, of Jesus' public ministry. And I told you last time as we were working through this 
that as I was studying this out and thinking about it, I had a lot of questions that were in my mind, but one question more than all the other questions kept coming back to the, to the forefront of my mind as being the most important question. And the question was, why, out of all the days that Mark could have chosen, why did he choose this particular day as the day to show us first in Jesus's public ministry? And, you know, you don't, sometimes you, you run across questions as you study the Bible that are hard to answer. And sometimes you run across questions that are easy to answer. And this was one of those ones that was really easy to answer right off the bat. The reason that Mark chooses this particular day to introduce Jesus to us in his public ministry is because there are things that occur in this day that emphasize exactly what it is that Mark wants us to see first. And so last week we tried to answer the question of what is it that Mark wants us to see here? in this first day of Jesus's ministry so that we can see it and understand Jesus for who he really is the way Mark wants us to. And so we looked at the first scene here on this first day. It's verses 21 to 28. In that scene, Mark gives us certain details about an event that occurred at the synagogue that particular Saturday morning. But uh, just kind of look back, if you will, at verse 21. I'm not going to put the slides up, but you just look at your, your text as I'm talking through it again just to remind us. It's Saturday morning. He's, it's the Sabbath day. He's at the synagogue there in Capernaum, and he's teaching. And, and I paused this last time, and I would remind us of this today because it matters for the next scene in the story. I paused and said, notice that in verse 21, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus is teaching. And that stands out as odd to me because if I'm Mark and I'm trying to write to you about how great Jesus is and I want you to understand him the way I do, then I, me, just the way I think, I would probably tell you, well, he was teaching about this. He was preaching a sermon to us about this or he was explaining this great truth about God, about who he is, about something. I would probably give you some clue as to the content. And yet you look at verse 21 and Mark doesn't do that. He doesn't even address the content at all, but he does point something out about Jesus's teaching that maybe is really what he's trying to get our attention with. He simply tells us that Jesus is teaching and he says that whatever it is that Jesus is teaching, it's powerful. And you know that because in verse 22, what is the response of the people? They're astonished at his teaching because he teaches them as one who has what? authority. And, and that was where we stopped. And I said, you, you need to underline that word. That, that's the key word here. Because this word authority that Mark uses here in chapter 1, verse 22, is not a normal word for authority. It has to do with dominion or power or might, not in a sense that you would use of any normal person, something that you would maybe talk about with a king or with a general, with a judge, someone who's got real authority, who can do something with it. It's often used of divine things. And so here, Mark is indicating that as the people listen to Jesus' teaching, they're struck by this kind of kingly, divine authority that just comes from his teaching. And so you keep going. Immediately after this, verse 23, the demon-possessed guy is there in the synagogue, and he cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And 
irony of ironies, right? The, the most orthodox guy in the room is the demon-possessed man. No one else knows who Jesus is. For the rest of the people sitting there, it's going to take some of them weeks, months, some of them years. Some of them will never even figure it out. It's going to take them a long time to, to learn who Jesus really is. This guy, he knows him now. He recognizes him now. He, 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 so he's, he says this to Jesus. He's clearly afraid of Jesus' power. He's worried. If you come to destroy us, but you see Jesus hasn't come to destroy him. He's just not going to let him stay in his current you know, situation. So he, he casts him out. Be quiet. Leave. And what does the, the demon do? He obeys. Instantly, he obeys. And, and again, again in verse 27, Mark shows you the response of the people. It's a pattern that's forming. You see this? What's the response of the people? They are amazed. They're amazed at what has happened. And, and you, you have to ask the question, why? Why are they so amazed here? Well, you see it. They're amazed now because he has some kind of authority. There's your word again. Authority that he can command even the unclean spirits and they will obey him. Whoa, what is this? Who is this man with this kind of authority that he can teach and speak in this way? They've never seen anything like it. And so Mark ends that section by noting that at once. I love his use of of this word at once or immediately. At once his fame spreads everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. They go home and they're like, man, you should have been in synagogue today. There was this guy there and he was teaching. And it was awesome. I've never heard anything like it. And then, then at the last, you know, right at near the end, a guy came out and he was demon possessed. You know, Bill from, from the, the fish market, he was a demon possessed guy. I kind of thought so. But, but now, now Jesus has, has gotten rid of this thing and, and they're amazed by it. And so as they, as they go home, they're, they're telling people this and news is spreading throughout the community. And so in this first scene of this first day, Mark has highlighted for us Jesus's authority, his power in word. Okay, make sure you, you catch that because that's the theme. He teaches, they, they hear his teaching. What authority? A demon-possessed guy comes out and he says, be silent, come out. And the demon immediately obeys. And again, the people are like, wow, what authority? Never seen anything like it. You see Jesus's authority, his power in word. And so I wonder then... Maybe Mark wants us to see that more on this first day. You think? Maybe? Possibly? Yeah, he does. What he wants to do now in this next scene, verses 29 to 34, is give us another little episode in this time of Jesus' day here where he's going to show us Jesus' authority and power again. Except this time not in word, this time in deed in action. And so let's do exactly what we did last time. Let's just walk through verses 29 to 34 together, and then we'll come back and see what it is that Mark is trying to show us. So look at verse 29. In in verse 29, Mark begins to transition to this new scene, and he uses this phrase here that I, I mentioned just a moment ago, immediately to transition it. And for those of you who weren't here earlier when I explained this, you're going to see this word a lot in Mark 1. He loves this word. He uses it more than anyone else. And you can use this Greek word here behind this in one of two different ways. You can use it either temporally to show you the next thing that happens in time. So if you look at verse 30, you'll see him using it that way there. They walk in the door and immediately they come tell him about Simon's mother-in-law. 
she's sick, you need to come in, okay? That's just, comes in, they come and tell him, and we move on. That's immediately used in a temporal kind of way. But you can also use it in a rhetorical kind of way to show you the next important thing that's going to happen. So the service ends, and the next thing that Mark wants to draw our attention to is what happens when Jesus gets into Peter, Simon, excuse me, Simon and Andrew's house. They, he comes back home, and he walks in the door, and certain things are about to go on. And I want to stop here and help you picture this as best as, as you can, as best as I can help you picture it. Because one of my goals, and this is not necessarily related to today's message, but just a general comment. One of my goals for us in Mark is that by the time we're done with this book, you will not read either Mark or any of the other Gospels the same way ever again. I want you to picture things and see things, and I want the story to come alive for you as best I can. So I'm going to try to do stuff throughout our time in Mark from now to whenever we finish to help with that as best as I am able. So a couple of weeks ago, I showed you this particular picture, okay? This is Capernaum today. You remember this? And uh, I get to use my handy-dandy pointer here. Let's see. No. Oh, yeah, there it is. Oh, it doesn't work on the television. Oh, that stinks. Okay. That's what I get for not trying it. Remember this building down here at the bottom, the white one over here for you guys on this side? That is the what? The synagogue, right? This is the synagogue, the big white one down here in the bottom, what's left of it. And then there's a weird modern building up top in the shape of an octagon. What is that? He lived in a weird modern shaped octagon building. Oh, it's above his house. Okay, it's a church. A Catholic church is built above his house. I showed you this picture. This is what we have found of Capernaum so far today, but I found a better picture that I wanted to show you. It's a little small. This is a picture that was taken in 1972, just after excavations had begun. In fact, you can kind of see, if, you, if I could make it bigger, you could see where truck tire tracks are still like going through the area and they're moving stuff around digging stuff out but this picture takes away all the modern stuff unless you just see it as it was originally found and you can notice a number of things here that are kind of important to the story for example here is the synagogue i'll zoom in a little bit here is the synagogue that is basically the the spot of the story that we're in right now and if you were here you know this one that we can see is not jesus's synagogue the one he was in there in the story this is one that was built in like the fourth or fifth century AD, but the one he's in is right under this. You can still see the stones of that original building there. So here's Jesus. He's teaching in here. The, the demon-possessed guy speaks out. He, he casts out the demon. And verse 29 says it's time to go home. So he, he walks out the door. The door's on the south side of the building. He walks out the door, makes a left, goes down to that main road. He makes a right, and he makes his way over to Peter's house. Okay, so it's about a block away, you could say. Not, not too far. Can you picture him walking down the street, by the way? Like, as you see this, I, I try to picture it as I watch it here. And I, I've, I've done a lot, of, a lot more reading and research about this particular house. Not that it's necessarily the house, but I think it's helpful for us just to think about it. I, I, I do believe it probably is Peter's house. I've learned that there was a church meeting in this location as early as the first century. I mean, right on Peter may have even still been alive when they're doing that. Uh, meeting there so he's there in this location uh you see this weird octagon shape above that that was a church that was built over top of the site about the fourth or fifth century ad so christians for a very long time have seen this this place as being peter's house and it it probably is but it's confusing with all the stuff all the lines and all the stuff and so i i did something i hope this is helpful i found 
an artist's conception of what the original house looked like based on the, the remains here. So I'll put that over top of it if it works. Okay, so there you go. This is what the original structure that was there in the first century looked like, or something to this effect. There's a door, I'll try to show it to you, that's right up down here, kind of in the middle of the screen. That's the only door to the original compound that was, that was there. You can see it over here, middle of your screen. Some little scale people kind of in the courtyard there. There's a couple of courtyards. There are these outbuildings here around the edge. Those are most likely service buildings, like where you'd keep your nets. or They're the sheds, okay? That's your garage. There's more buildings in the center, three of them specifically, kind of three. There's a long one at the top. There's one in the middle that's got the roof off of it for the sake of the picture. And another one here. Those are the, the dwelling places in this particular thing. And, and you need to remember that in the first century, families didn't all have their individual homes. You live together. So you're there and your brother's there and your mom and dad are there and Uncle Joe's there and everybody else is all kind of living together in the same place. And you even see that here in the story because Jesus walks back to whose house? Read it. Look at your Bible. You're all guessing. Jesus. No. Whose house does he walk back to? Simon and Andrew's house, okay? It's, it's not just Simon's house. We keep calling it that, but it's not just his house. It's Simon and Andrew's house. So you get the idea that there's multiple family units all connected together here. So he's here. Now, I'll pause, and we'll come back to the story in a second. So they would have been living in something like this. About 200 years later, Christians took this site, and they changed it. So they added a larger exterior wall. They tore down some of the buildings that had been on the outer edge. They added on a couple of rooms because that inner, the inner buildings there, the middle part, was what they were using as a, a gathering place for their church, and they wanted it to be a little bigger and to protect it because people were already coming and trying to take stuff because that's how people are, right? They take stuff. So uh, they were trying to take stuff, and eventually they tear all of this down, and they build that octagon-shaped building over top of it, but... But for our purposes now, I just want you to look at this picture. I'll leave it up here for just a moment. Picture Jesus walking out of the synagogue and walking down to this house. And you see what, what happens as, as he gets here in verse uh, 31, I think it is, or 29, 30. He, he walks in and he sees that, or hears that Simon's mother-in-law is sick in bed with a fever. She, she wasn't at synagogue. She's at home and she's not feeling good. She, she's pretty sick. And so, you know, you realize from that statement that one, Peter is what? Married. And I say that only because, and we'll talk more about the disciples later on. I say that now only because I think we tend to forget that the disciples are real guys. They're real people with real families, real lives. They got stuff going on. There's probably kids running around. I don't know if they had kids or didn't have kids, but they're real people with real lives. And you see just a glimpse of that here. She's in bed with a fever. And we, we hear that and we're quick to downplay it because we're like, oh, it's just a fever. All she needs is some Tylenol, right? They didn't have that. But she just needs to go to patient first and wait for four hours. See, that would be great. They don't have that either. This, this is actually a pretty serious situation. She's sick with something. Something's going on and they're clearly concerned about it. And so as soon as Jesus walks in the door, they come in and they're like, Jesus, Jesus, she's sick. She's got a fever. She's in bed. Maybe she's going to die. They don't know. What does Jesus do? And this is where you really need to pay very careful attention to how Mark is presenting the story. He doesn't tell us that Jesus says something, does he? 
He shows us only what Jesus does. He comes to her bedside, he takes her by the hand, and he lifts her up. No words. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't speak, but if he did, Mark doesn't record it here purposefully, I would say. He doesn't record any words. It's just, it's just a deed. And, and, and what happens to her as he is lifting her out of the bed instantly? She's healed. Was she healed when he touched her hand or when he lifted her up? When was he healed? I don't know. But she's healed here by Jesus' action. And I just love, I love the last words of verse 31. The fever left her and she began to serve them. Because to me, it just adds so much color to this particular scene. And again, I'm all about us seeing the, the color in the story so that we can really picture it. Because remember, I told you that during our introduction to Mark, that many, many people believe that, that Mark is simply giving us a re, an accounting of, of Peter's memories. Mark knows Peter, and, and he's heard Peter tell the story of, of Jesus' life in public ministry, and so he's writing down these details. And here's one of the reasons people think this, because Mark's the only guy who records this story. And I can just see Peter sitting there, like, reflecting back. I remember that time after that great synagogue service where he cast out the demon-possessed guy from, from the fish guy down the street, that... that we came home, and mom was sick, and Jesus just walked in, and he lifted her up. And, and I love, again, the fact that when she gets up, she, what does she do? She wants to serve people. That's what grandmas do, right? It made me think of a, sorry, personal story. It made me think of a, my mima. That was my mom's mom, okay? She died when I was like between seven and nine, something like that. Love going to Mima's house. You know why? Because when you got to Mima's house, and oh, I should tell you, my, my, my mom's mom was an interesting person, and I mean that with no respect. All love, but she was like this tall, I think, because she was hunched over, hunched back, so she was really hunched over. She's about this tall, and she, wrinkled face, horn rim glasses, very drab clothing, black shoes, and she carried a black purse that was like half her size. And the reason I remember this is because my grandmother also chewed tobacco, which every time I say that to people, they're like, what? But uh, she did. She chewed tobacco. And I remember us being in a Rose's department store when Rose's was actually a real department store. It was like the target of its day, okay? When uh, we were at a Rose's department store, and she's walking down the the aisle like this, purse in hand, and she stops. She opens up her purse. She reaches in, and she pulls out a mason jar that is wrapped in tinfoil, unscrews the top, back in her purse, and just keeps on walking down the aisle. I would swear to you, I, I think this is a true memory, but I was young and time has passed and I might have forgotten things, but I would swear to you she had a tin Quaker oat can at the end of the, her couch. And that can never moved, but that was always where she spit, from wherever she was at in her living room, which wasn't very large, and she never missed. I'm just saying. That was my grandmother. That was, was Mima. okay? You walked into Mima's house, though. Where's Mima at? In the kitchen. This is just what we did. You go for Easter, and she's there, and she's in the kitchen, and she's covered in flour because she's been making biscuits, and she brings all the grandkids in, and we're, she's already boiled the eggs, and, hey, everybody sit down. We're going to color the eggs. She paint, we paint the eggs with her, and then she kicks us all out of the house. She had a big woods and a creek behind her house. We'd go out there and play, and, and she would get stuff ready, and then she'd send the men out to hide the eggs, and you come inside, and she's just busy. She's just active because that's what Mimas do. And you see that here as, as Peter remembers the story. He's like, remember when, when Jesus healed mom and she got up? She's probably all flustered. I'm so embarrassed. What are you all looking at? Get to work. And she's just doing her thing. I, I love the, you, you see the family. You, you, can, you can feel what's going on in the story as, 
is they're just being a family together with Jesus in their midst. And I just think it makes the story come alive, those little kinds of details along the way. So some time passes. Don't know how much. Some time passes, and sundown comes. Sabbath is over. And people start showing up in droves now. And again, just kind of picture the scene if you can. Imagine people all outside <laughs> this courtyard out here and all down the road that says they're coming to the door. They want Jesus to, to heal them. They've heard about what's happened. They, they've heard about what he did in synagogue. And they're like, I've got, my, my mima's sick too. And, and, and my brother's sick and my, my neighbor's sick. And I'm pretty sure, you know, Uncle Joe's got and some other Uncle Joe. He's got a demon in him too, so we should take them down to to see Jesus and and let him work. and And that's what Jesus does. He he stays there as all these sick people and these people who are oppressed by demons come to him, and he heals them. Note and notice exactly how Mark words it. What does he do? He healed. How did he heal them? Does Mark tell you? Did he speak words to them and heal them? Maybe. Did he, like, you know, spit on the ground? He does this once with a blind man. He spits on the ground, and he makes a little mud, and he wipes it on his eyes. Is that what he's doing here? Did he touch them? Does he just look at them? Does he wave his hand? Mark doesn't answer those questions. All he wants to draw your attention to is the fact that they're healed. Here's the action. They're healed. He also cast out demons. Again, the emphasis is on the the action of what he's doing here, the doing of the deed. He just wants you to, to see that it's done. And so in these, these comments, what Mark is emphasizing is it's Jesus's actions, his deeds at this moment, nothing more. And then he ends with kind of a, an odd statement that we'll look at more last time, that he wouldn't permit the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew him. And if you're curious as, as why he does that, because he's done that twice now. He did that up in the synagogue when the, the demon-possessed guy was there, and he says, be silent. Don't speak anymore. Come out. And the demon obeys. And here he, he doesn't want them talking about him because they know him. Why is that the case? Well, come back next week and you'll, you'll understand why. So, so in the second scene, what is Mark emphasizing here? He's emphasizing Jesus' power in deed. In action. You see Jesus' power over sickness first with Simon's mother-in-law. Her fever is no match for him. He simply takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and instantly she's healed. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. There's no incantations, no medicines he needs to, to get. He just does it. It's his power in action. You see it a second time when he exercises this power over the many who have come. Notice that word in verse 34. Over the many who have come with various diseases. So it's not just fevers that he happens to be really good at. You know, he's got some skills with the fever stuff, but he's, he's apparently good over a lot of things. Whatever they bring to him, he's able to deal with. He's able to heal. And so you see his power over sickness here in his actions. You also see his power over demons again. Mark describes the exorcisms in the second scene in terms of Jesus doing something, not saying something. He just cast them out. Maybe with words, maybe not. It doesn't matter. The point is that he did it. And again, Mark wants you to see that he cast out many demons. So it's not just that he's good when he's one-on-one. There can be a whole bunch of them, and he's equally good. He can handle anything that could be thrown at him in the spiritual world, whether it's one demon or all the demons. They're no match for him. 
And so by the end of this first day, as you take both scenes now, Jesus' authority shown in his word, Jesus' authority and power shown in his deed, you put them all together into one package. Here's what you've learned. You have learned that Jesus is not simply some fancy, flowery communicator who could fast-talk someone out of their, their last nickel. He's not just your uh, you know, average guy who happens to come through town and he's got a sideshow of, of, of stuff going on over here on the religious front. He's got a tent set up out in the parking lot and he wants everybody to show up because he wants to show them some stuff. Jesus isn't that guy. He is a guy, unlike any other guy they've seen, who has clear authority over any realm of life we're talking about in And Mark has shown three so far. He's shown that Jesus has authority over the religious realm. You say, where do you see that? Well, I see it in scene one where his teaching is unlike the scribes. He doesn't speak about God. He speaks for God. The people of his day were afraid of these religious power figures who exercised their authority in many different ways in their culture. Jesus comes along the scene and he's not worried about them. They're nothing to him. Compared to, to, to them, excuse me, compared to Jesus, those guys are nothing. There are no religious powers or authorities above Jesus. He's authoritative over the religious realm. You see his authority over the physical realm as well. No sickness can defeat him or thwart him. He never finds a case too hard for, for him to handle. It's nothing to him. Sickness is a, is a clear threat to these people, something that they would fear. But to Jesus... With a word, with a touch, with a, with a deed, sickness flees. He's an authoritative over, the, authoritative over the spiritual realm. There's no demon that can stand up to him. These, these spiritual powers, these evil spiritual powers that the people would, would fear, would cower in front of, all cower in front of Jesus. They're afraid of him. They're afraid he's going to destroy them. And, and they obey him as if they have to. Maybe they do. That means that in, in, in this one day then, Mark has shown us that Jesus is greater than and authoritative over all of these things. All of these things, these realms, the religious, physical, spiritual realms that, that continue to hold power over so many others. Jesus, Jesus is authoritative over them all. Where the people cower before those things, Jesus stands supreme over them all. Did you know that people still cower in front of those same things today? You think about the religious realm. People are enamored with men and their systems of belief that seem to be authorities, but aren't. They're happy to, to, to follow those men and follow those systems without any question at all, but they're, they're enslaved to lies. They're fearful of the physical realm. They continue to think that the the greatest dangers facing them are in this physical world, whether that's sickness or money or politics or you fill in the blank. They think that that these are the dangers that are most pressing and, and I'm in fear of them. I'm in fear of losing this. I'm in fear of not having that. I'm in fear of catching this or catching that. Or They live their lives in fear. They're in fear in the spiritual realm as well. People continue to live in fear of the things they don't understand, the superstition that, that they attach to all these things in life. Well, this happened because of that, and and all oh, this is terrible, and I think that the God doesn't love me because of this or that thing. Listen, listen. What you need to see here is that Jesus, 
the authoritative one, the only one with true authority has come to set us free from these things, from these false authorities that would surround us and enslave us for the rest of our lives. He, he sets us free from systems of belief that are based on lies by offering to us the truth of himself. He, he, he came to die for us so that we could be set free from these systems that offer salvation but don't. And so on the cross, we see Jesus presenting himself as far superior to any system of belief that anyone else could ever offer. He sets us free from the physical dangers, not because he takes away all possibility of sickness, but because he offers eternal life. Don't fear the person who can kill your body. You feel the person who has authority over your soul. Who's that? It's Jesus. So your, your 401k or lack thereof is not the greatest danger you have, nor is cancer, nor is anything else you can think of. Jesus has come wanting us to, to treasure him above all of those physical things, hoping for, longing for the eternal life that he has won for us through his death. He sets us free from the power of evil, that is around us and is active in this world. We'll talk about that next Sunday. How does he free us from that power of evil? It's through his word and by giving us his spirit. He changes the way we interact with those things and in fact won the victory over them through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so Jesus stands today not, not just as an option among many, but as the authoritative divine king who demands our obedience that's who he is and so as you stand here sit here today and you listen to this it's like like i prayed at the very beginning i i I don't i get that most people would understand that if i call jesus king they get it they've heard that kind of stuff before that's no big big deal to hear that term used of jesus but they don't live like he's king they're they're committed to systems that aren't really connected to Jesus in the end. They're fearful of everything around them, not treasuring Christ above all. And they, they are under the influence of evil in their hearts and in this world around them without understanding that Jesus has given victory. They, they may know he's king, but they don't live like it. And so my challenge to you today, my, my plea with you, is to see Jesus as the divine king that he is to bow your knee in submission to him and to live for this king forever. Will you bow your heads quickly with me? Jesus, I thank you for your authority. I stand in awe of it. it. You are authoritative in word. You are authoritative in deed. We are nothing compared to you. You are the divine king. Forgive us forever living our lives purposefully, forgetting that fact. And so God, now as we walk out of here today, there are people in this room who continue to hold to lies, who continue to fear the things around them. They continue to to be under the influence of evil. They have no idea that you, the divine king, have come, have died to set them free, have given them alternatives that are so far greater than any of those things that they can't even imagine Lord, will you help them to understand those truths and to embrace them? 
For us who are believers, Lord, forgive us of our fear of, and our, our continuing to hold on to those things. Let us, Lord, let go and to cling only to you because you are lo- alone are the one worthy to be praised. You alone are authoritative and, and we see that. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for letting us see it here so clearly in this first day of your public ministry as we think of it. Lord, I, I pray that as we continue working through, we will we'll be more and more enamored by who you are here in Mark. In Jesus' name, amen.